Hello, my name is Declan Devine. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of guests on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's show is James Ryan, and this episode is going to blow your mind. <laughs> um, I was I was first introduced to James by a previous guest, Mike Cook, uh, in a similarly kind of mind-blowing interview. Um, and both uh, Mike and James, although kind of working in different areas, they're both, to me, kind of examples of the, the potential futures of video games. Uh, Mike from a artificial intelligence point of view and James from a world-building point of view. And one of the things that James is working on, he's currently finishing up a PhD at the University of uh, California, Santa Cruz. Um, and one of the things he's working on is this this framework called Talk of the Town, which procedurally generates a, a universe and a history and relationships. And he's able to use this in so many incredible ways to tell stories and to create the type of experiences that have just never been possible before. Um, and the thought of you know the, some of the work that we talk about in the show you know, being introduced into kind of more procedural games and open world games, similar to like, you know, how the, the Nemesis system in uh, Shadow of Mordor uh, is kind of, you know, that felt like a very groundbreaking, exciting new way. Um, I feel like the, the type of things that James is working on could just just completely revolutionize that and, and make new experiences that have never been experienced before. Like this was a just a really exciting, um, thrilling, genuinely thrilling chat when you talk to somebody who's kind of pushing out the boundaries of uh, what is possible. There's always a risk with opening a show like that, that maybe it doesn't live up to the potential. It definitely does. Like, I, I really, I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this uh, this chat with James. Uh, and I really hope that you do too. Um, if you do, please consider telling a friend, sharing on social media, um, rating and reviewing it on iTunes or whatever platform you might use. All of these are really excellent ways to help out the show and make uh, make the audience grow and you know help people, new people, discover it. If you really like the show, there's a Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. Any and all donations are very gratefully received and go back into making the show as good as it possibly can be. Um, similarly, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, if you have any suggestions or thoughts or ideas for guests, please get in touch. You can email it's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at checkpointshow on Twitter or it's checkpointspodcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. Um, you can probably tell my voice is a bit weird. I'm, I've, I've not been feeling too well this week, uh, unfortunately. Um, thankfully, there's been you know things like Monster Hunter to keep me going, and also just loads of work to do. Um, mostly Monster, Monster Hunter, though. Let's be honest. Uh, I'll be back next week as always with a new episode and a new guest. Thanks so much for listening. Let's get on with the show. Do, uh, let's do the formal introduction and get that out of the way. So, uh, James, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for for coming on. If you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? I would love to. Thanks for having me on, Declan. Uh, it's a real pleasure. My name is James Ryan. I'm a fifth year PhD candidate 
in computational media at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Um, so being in my fifth year, this is my final year, so I'm kind of on the home stretch here. I have about six months left until I uh, finish up in the summer. So my work here has uh, generally spanned three different areas. Okay. So the first, I can and I can enumerate these if you'd like. Yeah, of course. Okay. So the first area is uh, simulationist simulationist approaches to experience design. So just as a game like Dwarf Fortress has this deep simulation that enables a video game experience that's really about emergent narratives, mm -hmm. uh, I've built a series of simulationist frameworks that are about enabling emergent narrative in not just video games, but uh, for instance, in audio-based storytelling. So for my dissertation, I'm trying to generate radio drama. Um, another oh, example. Yeah, we can talk more about that if you Absolutely, like. Absolutely, yeah. Embarking on that, which is which has been a lot of fun. And then another project in that area is called Bad News, which uses uh, a deep simulation to enable uh, an installation-based work with a live actor. That saying that that is the I think the one thing that really stood out to me was was Bad News as being like this is amazing. Like there's. I think because it kind of hits so many of the things that I'm interested in, because obviously it's, it's kind of there, there are game elements to it, but also like I do, I, I work for in the theater, I write for theater, I've performed, oh, like wow. I, I'm yeah. a magician, I do those sort of shows. And so it just hits all those those boxes. Um, interesting, actually, you know, we've just started mentioning and, and you, you so sure. eloquently put in your introduction that you were just finishing up your five years of a, a PhD. One of the things that I'm not sure if this is because of the PhD or because of you, but you, you've got an astonishing number of, of really fascinating projects that you've paid over the past few years. Is that, do you think that's, I mean, obviously some of it has come from your, your work on your PhD, but is that, is there a lot of that that's just purely that your own love of doing it? Well, what happened is I ended up in this amazing place, which is UC Santa Cruz, um, the school where, my, where, I, where I am at. Because that um, is like, I mean, that that's not, um, it is kind of uncharacteristically a lot of practical work you're doing. It is, it is. Um, but really it, it ends up being attributed to the research lab that I'm in at UC Santa Cruz. So I'm in this really amazing research lab called the Expressive Intelligence Studio. Um, it's co-directed by Michael Matias, who with Andrew Stern did Facade, if you're familiar with that oh, game. Oh, amazing, yeah. Yeah, so so Michael is the founder and co-director of this lab, and then our other co-director is Noah Wardrup-Fruin, um, who's a really big name in electronic literature um, in adjacent areas. But really, they're um, besides being brilliant in their own right, um, just as directors of the lab, they're really big facilitators and mentors um, to all of us across a range of projects we might want to do. So what happened was I had these like diverse interests just in my life, and then I came to a place where those diverse interests in my life each be became uh, viable research projects because of the kind of environment that I'm in. So here you can kind of write a paper on anything that will be interesting to you. It's probably going to be interesting um, to our advisors, Michael and Noah. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, everything that you've done is has such a... Not everything. No, that's not true. Everything that you've done, it, it has... Um, not just kind of like a, you know obviously it's got a decent amount of academic weight but they've all got such great hooks like you know they're, they're, they're brilliant pitches like here's a universe of every video game ever made kind of clustered by genre like that that's immediately like brilliant i want to look at that 
and also <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure there's a huge amount of kind of academic kind of work and theory that you can kind of draw from that or put into that but just that alone and it's true of like, I think most of your projects it's just they're, they're really exciting kind of one-liners to talk about well thank you that that's so nice of you to say um and definitely me personally and, and in the lab I'm in we strive for um doing work that's cool to people outside of academia and to then still publish in academia of course you have to have um, a certain kind of argumentation and yeah, prose but we're totally like targeting people that like cool stuff, whether or not they're in academia and you being someone outside of academia who likes cool stuff. That's uh, really high praise. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed and sort of delighted to hear that one of the creators of uh, Facade is kind of running that lab because that that's a weirdly a game that I probably, I wasn't hugely familiar with, but it's one that's come up quite a lot um, during uh, the show, like with various people I've spoken to because yeah. it's, it's kind of a relatively obscure but also i think quite a pivotal game because it was really reaching for something that possibly like you know it wasn't quite able to to get at but it's it's clearly inspired like a lot of people like a lot of people have mentioned it on the show and it's basically like just in case you haven't heard of it it's uh it's kind of an, an ai driven kind of relationship basically you're a you're a a person who comes to an apartment and watches a couple fights and you can be involved however you want and it's just all this kind of procedural storytelling type stuff yeah the the real uh, mechanical hook is that you can type in whatever you want to say to yes, the character yes and that feeds then into the ongoing experience yeah i think that game it was definitely ahead of its time um if it was made today it would still be ahead of its time and at the time, it was like a an indie darling, but indie games were even exactly uh, yeah they they weren't as big as they are now certainly exactly like at one game of the year at, at Slam Dance, which was really a predecessor to what became Indiecade. Um, but I think it's one of those kind of uh, media works that influenced a lot of people who then go on to create media works, which makes sense that you would have folks on this show um, who for them it was a, it was a big work, even if sort of everyday people at this point. Yeah. don't know it there was um the velvet underground's first album there was like a catchy phrase by a rolling stone writer uh that said something like it only sold thirty thousand copies but all thirty thousand people that bought that went on to start a rock band and i think that's a good uh, line thought is that kind of, I, I i think and i hope that it's had that kind of influence on uh, game developers if not the larger game community at this point unfortunately well, um, well, let's talk uh, inspiration then. We're going to come back to the various projects you've worked on because, sure. as I say, they're, they're all very fascinating. But um, if you can remember, we'll start at the beginning. And James, what was your very first experience of a video game? So my dad played games, um, which when I was growing up, I was born in 87. So in the early 90s and, and even into the early 2000s, I didn't know anyone in my friends or family whose dad played games. So that was a really cool thing. And what it meant for me is that um, I don't remember not playing games. Like uh, the controller was, you know, the joystick was already in my hand. But I actually have a very vivid uh, memory of my first game, and it was Pitfall, the, the sort of Ur platformer on the, the Atari. Atari yeah. Yeah. So that game had come out a few years before I was born even, but uh, the system that we had at, in my earliest age, again, because my dad played games, was the ColecoVision, which I don't know if you guys had that over there, um, but it was one of the major American systems of that generation. Yeah, it was you know, like, I don't know, because like I was born, I was born a bit earlier than you, I was born in 81, and certainly like I've grown up 
knowing that name, I guess, but I couldn't tell I, you if it was actually here or not because I was probably a bit young. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it was uh, only distributed in the US, but it was essentially like the major competitor to the Atari 2600 with Intellivision being uh, the third uh, the third horse in that race. Yeah. So uh, we had a ColecoVision, but Pitfall is an Atari 2600 game, but uh, ColecoVision famously had an adapter that allowed you to play Atari games on the ColecoVision, which I think brought about legislation that basically made that never legally be an option again. Can you imagine playing on your Xbox One through an adapter, PlayStation 4 games? You know, weirdly, uh, though, I do remember there was, a, there was a disc you could get for, I think it was the PlayStation 2, um, and it was the, the Bleemcast, and it was an, an emulator you could load up and play Dreamcast games on your PlayStation. And I, I remember thinking, like, how is that legal? It probably wasn't, but I certainly remember seeing it on shelves, like in, in video game stores. Oh, that's remarkable. I would imagine that was like not legal at all. Um, so yeah, playing Pitfall is my earliest video game memory. And I can remember like the room of my house that it was in and the strange ColecoVision controller, which looked like, it looked like a car phone because it had the, the number. <laughs> buttons. Yeah, uh, that's where it all started for me. And you're right. I mean, I, I, just purely in terms of people I've spoken to on the show, they're it's very rare for parents to to have played games and and i always wonder like it, because you grew up in a house where your dad played games were they somehow less cool you know like they weren't that thing that like hey my parents don't understand this no i think um and i think you kind of got into this with my cook on an earlier episode of the show which was funny because um you had mentioned in that episode that that was probably the first time someone yeah absolutely came their dad having played and actually Mike and I have connected over this shared aspect of our histories. No, I think games, well, well first of all, my dad and I uh, are very close and we're very close. Um, so I always thought my dad was cool and anything he did was cool. But yes. I think even if I didn't, uh, like video games are inherently super cool, uh, especially when you're four years old or five years mm-hmm. old. And so I think, um, I, I can imagine for for the the very uh, the small multitude of us who had parents uh, who played games when we were growing up, I think we probably all still thought they were cool, regardless of whether uh, that would generally be the case with our parents' behaviors. Well, that's that's a good sign for future generations who are growing up with uh, video game playing dads and mums. Right, I think so. I think um, so. so. So because of that, like I guess. Um, did your dad become kind of a, your kind of creator, your your gatekeeper? Was he introducing games to you or was there a point where you started seeking them out yourself? So um, why I was playing the ColecoVision as a four-year-old or whatever age it was around then, uh, we actually had a, an NES, a Nintendo Entertainment System, but that was like my dad's system. And so I was sort of on the junior <laughs> one. Um, so I actually spent a lot of time watching my dad play video games like the coolest ones we had he would he would tend to play and i would watch him play but that was actually a really fun experience to just sort of watch this like it was almost like a cinematic experience to not be playing um and the graphics at that time of course just seemed so amazing and and your imagination then filling in the gaps too so i spent a lot of time watching him play games and then when he wasn't we had linked to the past for instance which is like the game in my life, if I had to pick one game um, for personal reasons and just because of how good it is. Uh, but like when he wasn't playing Link to the Past, I had my my save file and I could play at like odd times of the day or, or during the day when he was at work and things like that. So in a sense, um, 
he was gatekeeping because he was playing the coolest okay. games and I was watching him play. And then I would go on on my own and, and uh, fluster around trying to recreate what I had seen him do. So what what is it about Link to the Past that makes it such a, a special game for you? Um, I think really it's it's uh, the relationship I had I have with my dad. Um, we're really close. He's my best friend. And we really bonded over that game. Like that's when I remember... Um, you know, he was my dad, of course, but like we were really close and we really clicked beginning with that game. And for me, it's like even hearing the music from it's just like super emotional. Um, so for personal reasons, just bonding with my dad and then having that bond ever since, it's really important for me. And then it's just such a good game, you know. Yeah, it's, it's a good game to bond over. It's a good game to bond over. Yeah, I'm glad it was that and not... Uh, <laughs> So, you know, Final Fight Two or some random. Game. <laughs> hey, that, don't don't but, speak down on Final Fight Two. That's I, a, that's I a decent Final game. Fight and all of the Final Fights. Those <laughs> are actually, yeah, I rented those a lot. Um, but yeah, it's objectively like an amazing game. And at that time, it was such a revelation. I mean, people were ready to just name it the best console game to that point, right when it came yeah. out. Um, and for me, that's that's how I felt about it um, as an objective game. And then it was personally important to me too. Yeah, and it's it's like it's really odd to think back of like when I played Link to the Past for the first time, not really knowing a huge amount about it, and not having kind of the kind of mythos of Zelda behind it. It was just oh, here's another game, and I remember it was the first time I played it over my friend Thomas's house, um, and it was the first time I'd experienced this uh, sensation called game time. It was a, a, a British TV uh, presenter. She was on the show. This amazing woman, Violet Berlin. I, I believe coined this phrase where suddenly you start playing a game and then it it's eight hours later and how has that happened? And that was linked to the past for us. Like we couldn't believe that we'd been there all day. And it was like and, and just not an ounce of kind of boredom. It was like, well let's just keep going then, I guess. Right, right. That's absolutely how it felt. It felt like uh it was an open world game at that time. Yeah. It really felt like you could go anywhere and do anything and then the the interesting uh, design of letting you go into dungeons you actually weren't prepared to complete and things like that. It just really felt like this huge, you know, bursting world that was at your fingertips. Um, it's amazing. Yeah. So how did that, how did that kind of your relationship with games kind of change as you got older? Did you did you kind of form friendship groups around games? Like were they a thing that everybody played when you were sort of in school and stuff? Yeah, as a kid, I mean. Um, Everyone played games, definitely. I actually ended up playing less games going into, say, middle school and high school um, because there was a certain kind of experience that I'd always wanted that actually, like, Link to the Past gave me at that time. Um, and I felt like as a kid, like, for sure, games are going to head in this particular direction. And they didn't really, and a lot of what became, um, a lot of the major titles in that wake just didn't, uh, like scratch this itch that I've had. And this itch is for basically what I was describing with Link to the Past. Just these huge uh, worlds that are teeming with life where you feel like you could uh, like set up shop and just live in this world. Yeah. That's the kind of experience that I wanted. Um, and it felt like it was coming. I remember reading about Driver, the first Driver game. Uh, perhaps a game informer or something like that. And they were describing it as like this city that's simulated and there's actual 
you know, people living out their lives. I don't know. I'm not quoting it verbatim, of course. (laughs) But that was the sense I got like, wow, um, there's this game that's coming out where I can just like live in this city and just kind of go about my life and build relationships with virtual characters. And then the game came out and you can't even leave your car. Um, And I still (laughs) love the game just because of like the simulated traffic and things like that. Um, Where do you think that came from, though? Because like, that kind of shows both the kind of a level of patience on your behalf that is quite rare for kind of kids that age that you're like, nah, this, this, this isn't scratching that itch. Like, and like we, you must've still played other games or were they just not doing it for you? Like that's, that's such a, like I, I it's a, such a recognizable feeling, but nevertheless, you'd still just play everything anyway. Well, I, I certainly yeah. would, maybe I'm projecting. No, that's a good question, and it's totally fair. And I think I'm mischaracterizing um, my that period of my life. I definitely still played games, um, but it felt like for some people around me, the kids at school, um, playing games was starting to become an identity. Yeah, uh, a factor in identity formation. And for me, it didn't become that. And I think it didn't because it just wasn't. Uh, it wasn't scratching the itch that I was hoping that it would. And in, in other ways, totally different ways, other media were, um, yeah. like music was my identity in high school. Um, but I was still playing games. So actually, um, Grand Theft Auto 3, again, because it was like this, this teeming city of, of uh, like it seemed to be at that time teeming with life, especially yeah. with on their little routines even though they like leave memory once they go around the corner um that game was really really cool for me um but i've never been that interested in combat um i've actually never been that interested in scripted content i've always liked simulationist and emergent stuff um so i like really wasn't into the missions or the like core focus of the game which is violent combat um i just like to like try to drive the speed limits and try to uh, (laughs) All of the laws, which is really hard to do if, if anyone's ever tried that. So I played that. Um, I've always loved sports games. Actually, so a really important game in my life was Madden 2000, Madden NFL 2000. Any particular cult- reason for 2000? Or was that just yeah, the, there, the year you got into it? There's a very particular reason, which is that in uh, Madden NFL 2000, they introduced franchise mode. And so for those who aren't familiar uh Franchise mode is a mode that allows you to play multiple seasons going forward into typically 30 or 50 years, depending on the title. Um, And I love this because you can imagine when you go uh, prior to this, you could only play the same season over and over and over. And there's a fundamental reason, I think, for that, which is that the players who will then enter the league next year uh, aren't in the game yet. Yeah. So what in 2000 did is, is it would generate the new draft class. So it would be generating all of these virtual characters and they would enter the world and then people would retire. And then eventually all you had was these generated characters. And so when you would get to that point, it was like on your cartridge, this world lived that doesn't live in real life. Like typically <laughs> simulation of a real thing. It's these real players or FIFA or any sports game, of course. But I would uh, right away, I would try to simulate all the existing characters out of the league uh, and then start with like my own little world that lived on this cartridge. So that was actually a really important game for me because uh, for me, it was it was just emergent narrative. Like I, I, I wouldn't even play the games. I would just do the, the general management duties yeah. and draft players and stuff like that. That's, um, that's fascinating because that that's clearly something that's kind of uh, has kind of blossomed in in your more recent work you know these kind of 
sort of self-generating um, cities and systems and lives and things. But like surely at the time you wouldn't have had this kind of language to describe that. Like um, I'm assuming you're looking back at this in retrospect. Like totally. Yeah. Would you say was Madden maybe like the game that first kind of introduced this idea like to you that you can kind of generate new worlds and lives within a, within games? That's a good question. Um, certainly the systems aspect of things, which is uh, interesting to me too. Um, I think I probably first encountered that with SimCity. Okay, cool. SimCity was amazing for me. We didn't have a computer until I was uh, 10 or 11, but my neighbor had one. And SimCity came out when I was like uh, three or four, or uh, I started playing it you know, very early, but around that age. And SimCity was amazing because it was like this, this city and it was unique to you and the decisions you've made and emergent phenomena. Of course, I'm using vocabulary I didn't have. Yeah, yeah of uh, course. At my interpretive, I didn't have these interpretive performances at that age. Um, but SimCity was amazing, but then it left me deeply unfulfilled because like I had had in my head that these people were actually living out their life in some way, like that was happening in the simulation. But th there's no people, they're just numbers that go up and down. And then, um, what was it? Maybe you can recall, there was, I think, Streets of SimCity, or maybe it was SimCopter. Something came out in like the mid to late 90s that allowed you to take your SimCity city and then um, explore it by, I think, driving or flying. Yeah, SimCopter definitely did that. SimCopter did that, of course. But I think earlier, I want to say there was something called Streets of SimCity, but maybe I'm wrong. But I remember like taking a, a city and being like deeply disturbed that there was no life in this because I don't think there's even people <laughs> around. It was just buildings. Um, so that was a systems aspect. But yes, I would say this idea of generated characters living out some semblance of a life, which in the case of Madden NFL is very abstract because they're essentially they're only playing games and then making certain life decisions like whether to retire. Um, that's probably where i started thinking about these generative emergent experiences i just looked up streets of SimCity. i don't think it was <laughs> it's, okay. i've never heard of this game this is insane it's a it's a racing and vehicular combat game it's basically oh, kind of like funny. a mario kart game where you can ride around SimCity 2000 cities um, and I, yeah you could import your cities is that what you're seeing yeah yeah that, yeah that's kind of cool. It's even more disturbing to only be doing uh, and basically play Carmageddon around all the little uh, exactly. sim people. Well, I yeah, mean, that's not what I, I wanted to like own a corner store, you know. <laughs> well, given all the stuff you you just mentioned about about the various sort of sim games, like, well, literally, like how how much of an impact did the Sims have? Like that that to me feels like the game that you were describing and wished exist. Yeah. So Sims, uh, the Sims, the Sims, the first one in 1999. Um, was just absolutely uh, like a title shift for me. Um, but I didn't have a computer at that time. So my, my neighbor, Matt Henretta, had a computer. And I don't remember hearing about The Sims like being something that was going to come out um, until like I played it. And that's my first experience even oh, hearing cool. of it. Perhaps because I think... Uh, EA thought it was going to like completely fail and then famously became the like best selling franchise of all time. Yeah. So I can imagine it wasn't well marketed, but maybe I wasn't reading the right magazines or whatever. Um, but I went over to his house and he's like, you got to see this game. It's the Sims. It's like the people that live in Sim City, which is exactly what I had wanted. Exactly. 
and we went over there and uh i just recall going there every night for months um just working out we had this like it was just this guy i think that was the family that we started with and like all we wanted to do for weeks when we started was build a second level on his house and we were like grinding away at his job and like buying pieces of the wall as we could um so for me the sims was the closest anything had been to to scratching that itch i had it was like absolutely um major in my development as a game player and as a person who consumes media i absolutely loved it how old were you but when you played that first time i would have been like 11 or 12 that's um that's really interesting because i i think for most people well i say for most people purely because a lot of people I've spoken to on the show and just in real life are generally around a sort of similar age. So people would have come to The Sims a bit later. And I feel like someone playing at that age is probably like a really useful thing, you know? As, right. as kind of as basic as the kind of the the kind of the needs and wants and fulfilling desires are, it's still a relatively decent lesson of adulthood, you know? That's a much right. I, that feels like a much sort of richer experience than someone who's like twenty two who can't quite get their life together playing trying to make a virtual life you know all fit and work yeah that's apt man i mean yeah we were paycheck to paycheck right from the get-go <laughs> and i don't remember ever getting to a point where like this character i wish i could remember his name i'm actually kind of surprised i can't given how important this was to me uh we never got to this point of him having like a lavish lifestyle or anything like that but yeah i would say that's that's a good point it's a sort of tutorial into uh, an abstracted version of adulthood and so given your sort of interest in in these kind of games like i suppose i mean i'm assuming you inevitably would have got a, a pc like did you start quite quickly kind of exploring ways of making games were you interested in that aspect of it like did you learn to code in any fashion so um i, I learned to code when i was 25 so i had thought that i didn't like math and I thought that coding was a variant of math. Um, like I was picturing computer programs to be these like abstract symbols. <laughs> and like I totally misinterpreted what coding was. And so I thought the idea that I would code um, was kind of preposterous. My grandpa, though, when I was 10, my, my grandpa was a computer engineer and learned to code later in life in retirement. And he gave me a... Uh, like beginner's book to visual basic when I was 10 or when I was 11, right? He, he gave us our first computer, which was his old one. But I did, I tried for like an hour or two and then put it down. That's one of my biggest regrets because it then took me 15 years to begin. And what happened was I started learning Python. And again, I was working off a book, um, but I just kind of stuck with it for a bit. I actually had a professional incentive to learn it because I was then working at a research lab where I could essentially do, um, there was uh, more work that I could do if I knew how to program. Yeah. But anyway, I spent, uh, I kind of got over the initial hurdle and I was like completely, my mind was absolutely blown. Um, like I was hooked right away and I knew as soon as I, the, the specific moment where I knew that this is what I need to do with my life, I need to in some way programming was when I learned how to pick two random uh, pick randomly from a list of things and if you don't program uh, you who are listening to this uh, just as simple as that sounds you have a list of items 
And then using a random number generator, you can pick out a random element from it. So that just seemed like so powerful, even though it was so basic from a programming sense. But my first program um, after I learned to do that was I had a list of names that I had downloaded. And then I just randomly picked a first name and a last name from that list. And it was like I was creating a person, like virtual <laughs> people, just because it was a name. Um, and that actually, that picking two random names from a list developed into my first major program, which was a, a simulation of, of uh, little computer people. And so, no, I wasn't someone who grew up programming in any respect. Um, I never thought I would. I thought the fact, the idea of me doing that, I, it never came to mind really um, until I was 25 years old. And then it completely changed my path. Within one year, I was here at UC Santa Cruz. That's amazing. Um, so even though you didn't learn to code, like, do you think as you were growing up that you became aware that, that games were things that people made, like they were products of ingenuity? Totally, but it didn't seem possible to become one of those, uh, to join that clerical order. <laughs> it, it seemed, um, yeah, like I totally grew up wanting to make games, but it never seemed like you could really do that. And, and then again, this uh, strange uh, um, allergy to programming, which was totally unfounded, it turned out. Um, kept me from pursuing that, but I totally saw them as designed artifacts. And really that's where I, um, so the Sims was deeply important to me. Um, but actually it was also deeply unfulfilling in the end because it didn't have particular aspects that I thought it would. And I didn't understand why the designers of the game, um, didn't have these aspects. So one is like that what? I want, okay. I wanted the Sims to, and some of this actually made its way into the series eventually, but I was like troubled at the fact that the Sims didn't grow older in the first Sims. And so it was like this sort of like infinite life thing. I, I wanted to see a Sim like um, live out a lifespan and then new Sims come along and there's sort of a generational aspect to it. I always really liked generational storytelling in the yeah. sense of like, like roots where it's following a family for like six, seven generations. Um, that's what I wanted out of Sims. So I wanted a world that's not just sort of alive, but also evolving, changing over time. Um, and the Sims didn't have that. So I think sort of having these particular aspects that I really wanted that weren't in there. And then knowing that someone's designing the game and for them, that's not a priority but rather the more like mechanical aspects of the Sims, which which weren't even that interesting to me. Um, you know, the the Maslow's hierarchy kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so I, I became sort of disenchanted, I think, because of the fact that I realized um, that there were designers and they had priorities that it turns out those, it would appear similar to mine initially were not the same as mine. So did you did you drift away from games? Was there a period where you didn't really play much at all? Yeah, I would say in high school, um, I didn't play much at all. Um, I continued to play like Madden NFL franchise modes because those always did have this aspect of the world changing. Yeah. It's actually one of the few games that I can think of that and of course football manager and, and uh, games for other sports where the world is changing over the course of many years of story time. Um, and you could say something like civilization, but that's, it's not um, changing according to a simulation. It's sort of on rails more. 
So, so what was it that kind of pulled you back in then and kind of reignited this this interest in games? Learning to program. Oh, that was when it. I, that that completely changed it. That completely changed it. Yeah, um, because I realized I could scratch my own itch, if you will. <laughs> I keep using this particular phrase, but uh, once I learned to program, I realized that. Um, if no one was going to make these particular kind of experiences that I wanted to have, I could make them for myself. But I mean, that's, you know, you, you said you were like 25 or so when that happened. Like, I'm, I'm assuming there would have been quite a lot of games that had maybe been released in the intervening years. Like, did you kind of go back and rediscover things that you perhaps had missed? And you're like, oh, wait, no, this is really interesting. Yeah, to some extent. But um, what happened when I learned to program was that playing games became harder because okay. I understood the uh, development sort of uh, I understood it more as a code base and it was like oh like man if this was my game I would go in right now and add this particular thing <laughs> and like that would be awesome um, so games became a bit harder to play and then oddly enough the feeling for me of programming um, specifically programming these like simulated worlds that I see kind of evolving in front of me and interesting stories emerging from them. The feeling of programming those feels a lot like playing a game. No, I, um, I think I think that's, the, I mean, that's something that's becoming uh, increasingly clear with the more kind of developers that I speak to. Like, I'm not somebody who, who codes. Yeah. Like, I've never really, I've just never really taken the time to, to do it more than anything. Right. Um, but I do, like, I do recognize that. It, I mean, it, it is problem solving. It's, you know, it's puzzles, essentially. Right. And it's um, like what I wanted out of games really was a creative thrill. Like I was introducing something into the virtual world that the world was then reacting to. Like if I owned a corner store in SimCity 2000, right, if you could have that. Yeah. Like I introduce this store into the world and then be building relationships and the world itself, these other characters are reacting to, to what I've done. So in that sense, it's actually a, a the act of playing as a creative act. And what I had now is like uh, the act of programming is of course a creative act where um, it's just like an absolute thrill in the sense of how I expected the kind of experiences that I wanted to see, how thrilling those would be. So for me, um, when I get the itch to play, that itch is also satisfied by programming. So I end up, um, like I'll admit, I'm, I'm not well played with regard to games in, in this century even um, because for a while I didn't play them. And then when I got back into them, it was through this lens of programming. And now I just want to program these worlds create now. <laughs> See, that, that's why you've been so productive for these past few years. That's why, you, yeah. that's why I put it so much because that's all that time you were, you could have been playing, you know, leveling up through Destiny. You've been creating right. small towns essentially with 500-year histories. I've had a related conversation with Tarn Adams, the creator of Dwarf Fortress, and he's had the same experience. There's like a ton of games he wants to play. Um, but when he wakes up, he hunkers down to um, his C++ code base for Dwarf Fortress and like turns away on that um, and really doesn't find the time to play games or, or even the inclination because it's so fun to create this world that he's building. So, so where, like, what was your kind of plan? You said learning to code kind of changed your, your path a little bit. So, so what was... What were you thinking of doing before you discovered that? So a little bit larger context is that uh, for undergraduate, I got a bachelor's in linguistics. This was at the University of Minnesota. I'm from the Minneapolis area, Minnesota. Okay. 
And so I got a bachelor's in linguistics. My whole life I love language. Yeah. And um, in my senior year, someone reached out and said, someone who was, actually I think I was a junior and they were a senior. And this guy was gonna be graduating from the linguistics program that I was in. And he had been doing research with a lab on campus um, who hires linguistics students and they, they essentially needed his replacement. And so I ended up joining this lab and what the lab did was apply techniques from an area called natural language processing. Okay. So natural language meaning not programming languages like human languages, like English. And then processing meaning you apply uh, automated techniques, you know, you uh, process language using them, natural language. So okay. anyway, uh, they were using techniques in this area. It's, it's the intersection of linguistics and computer science is maybe a more intuitive way of thinking of it. Okay. So they were at that intersection applying techniques to clinical text. So like patient medical records and um, results from neuropsychological tests that have a linguistic component. So anyway, I go into this lab and I'm doing like low level work that um, having taken classes in linguistics, I was qualified to do, but the lab was really a computational lab. And so like the PhD students in the lab were all doing programming stuff. Um, so at one point I mentioned that I had this boss who said, if you learn to program, there's a lot more work you could do. And so that was the forcing function that led me to learn to program. And then, as I said, it completely changed my worldview. And meanwhile, I, as we've talked about at length now, I'd always had these interests in uh, generative worlds, virtual worlds and games and experiences in media. And so the clinical stuff I was doing when I first learned to program, I was doing you know, various works in that area of clinical natural language processing. It was interesting, but I could see as soon as I could pick randomly from a list, like, man, I can do some really interesting creative <laughs> and expressive stuff here. So then I started looking around at um, basically uh, graduate programs, PhD programs, where I could do this kind of stuff. And around that time, I encountered Facade. Facade was another uh, huge game in my life because in addition to wanting to like live in these virtual worlds or as part of it, I wanted to always be able to talk to characters. Like I remember wanting to talk to the Goombas in Super Mario <laughs> Brothers and be like, what are you doing? Like you're working for this Bowser guy. You just moved to the left. Like what's your life all about? And so <laughs> I, that I would be wanted... a really interesting conversation. And for some reason I feel like very sad as well. Right. Right. I've actually uh, for a while wanted to make, a few different versions of Super Mario Brothers, which is another game that I love. Um, and one would be, it's just dialogue based and you're sort of navigating this like bureaucratic hierarchy of the Bowser regime, uh, but purely through dialogue. I'm certain there must be fanfic where Mario befriends a Goomba and they, they go off and overthrow the system. <laughs> yeah. Please email me listener. If you, <laughs> so anyway, I'm looking up uh, different places and I'm playing Facade, and I'm looking up Michael Matias, who is a co-creator of Facade, and finding out he's at this place called Santa Cruz. And uh, I was specifically thinking of this pitch for myself because, mind you, I was trying to get into a computer science program having no computer science background. I had a linguistics background. And so my pitch essentially, and what I really was thinking I could contribute right off the bat because I had linguistics background and natural language processing background was dialogue generation for characters 
So you can imagine games where the characters generate what they're about to say right at the time they're going to say it, according to emergent stuff that's happening that an author beforehand couldn't have anticipated necessarily. So that was my pitch. I wrote Michael Matias an email saying like, uh, disclaimer, I don't have a computer science degree. I've never taken algebra. I've only taken algebra two. I've never done pre-calc or anything like that or whatever the prerequisites were, but I want to generate dialogue in games. And I do have this kind of background in linguistics and, uh, remarkably, and I can't even imagine where my life would be if he hadn't, but, um, he basically vouched for me to get into the program. And then I've been here ever since. And, and you've seen the work I've, I've been doing here since that's, uh, I'm, this is such a, like the, the the kind of the, the the generative linguistic stuff again that's something i'm really interested in like i was uh, I, i've got an english degree i've got like um a lot of that was kind of linguistic study and you know the, the history of, of language and kind of the reader oh, awesome. and stuff like yeah. that and which completely completely changed my life like genuinely the the sort of structure of language and i, I mean I'm, I'm assuming you will almost certainly be familiar with uh chris crawford's work and and seaboot and his right kind of half uh one well, no, quarter of a century kind of campaign. He he was on the, the show very early on and there was a the kind of the final part oh, of the cool, podcast. Yeah, no, it was it's a fascinating interview because like the, the final part of the podcast is him basically explaining to me his theory of language and how language is mathematical. Will I just hang on for dear life trying to understand and follow as best I can? Right. Because because this is the kind of stuff that, you know, you can really you can really get lost in, you know, you can really, this is like sitting down for a day to think about things kind of um, areas. Um, right. It's not necessarily yeah, what people it's think like, about like, oh, video games, fun. It's like, this is like, right. it's basically having to kind of deconstruct one of the most complicated things there is in order to reconstruct new things out of it, which is, you know, an insane task. Exactly. Um, yeah, and some of these can become lifelong projects like Absolutely. Chris went to fight with Megan uh, over 20 years ago, right? Or over 25 years ago, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and you find, it's it's actually interesting because it, you, you said uh, it's like deconstructing something and then reconstructing it. Yeah. But as you can imagine in doing that, you actually come to understand the thing that you deconstructed better. So uh, some work that happens in my field and, and even in my lab um, is work that's about taking theories from, say, social sciences like psychology or sociology um, or from um, art theory, so the theory of drama and dramaturgy and things like that, and then trying to computationalize it. So actually render that theory in a computer program that's at work in a game or some other piece of software. And what you find is that often the theories are underspecified. Because once you get into um, the level of computationalization, so you're actually rendering a theory in a computer program, uh, the computer is so literal and rigid and precise that you need to specify every single thing or it goes completely off the wall. So there's a basically there's a kind of practice called operationalization where you take theories from these different areas that are just theories in the sense of rhetoric and then actually render them as computer programs as a way to push back on the theories and understand the phenomenon that they describe um, better. This is very exciting. I mean, this is, I feel like in that Chris Crawford interview where I'm like, I'm, I'm just comprehending, but I'm really hanging on 
Well, uh, let, let's take a break from, from this uh, intense discussion, as, as wonderful as it is, and do some, some relatively quick-fire questions. Uh, sure. So, uh, James, um, if you had to play a game with death for your own mortal soul, what game are you best at? NBA Jam Tournament Edition. Oh, good call. Uh, are you familiar with NBA Jam on that side? Oh, of course, yeah. Okay, I didn't know if that... Uh how global that went i Um, I think weirdly i think that was one of the that's one of the reasons why the nba became more popular here is because of nba jam and that kind of the whole sort of chicago bull like i could probably name more basketballers from that particular time period than any other in history i was just reading an article about the game because it's 25th anniversary is coming up next year and so they were talking with the developer mark termel um and he was saying he didn't even follow the NBA at that point in his life. He liked it at, at various points. So they had to come up with a roster because there's only two players per game in the first yeah. one. And so they were just reading newspaper box scores to see like who who was having a good week <laughs> or whatever. And there was one player who's like, everyone wonders why this guy's on the Dallas Mavericks in that game. It's because he had his two best games of his career like in the week they were reading box scores. <laughs> Um, oh, it's yeah. such an amazing game, though. It's so it's so finely tuned, and and so Tournament Edition is the sequel to it, um, which is a much better game. It's a much much better game. The creator himself, Mark Tamel, agrees. Um, I really can't play the first one because I played the second one so much. So NBA Jam Tournament Edition is the game that I've been best at in my life. My friend and I, Pat Johnson. Um, uh, it, it's really the only game that I've got into high-level play, uh, the space of high-level play. So we basically played it all day for a summer yeah. um, to beat specific records that were on, uh, ah, what's it called, uh, Galaxy? Twin Galaxies. Re- Twin Galaxies. Um, which oh, so proper, piece- proper hardcore. Yeah, proper hardcore. Uh, we had seen um, King of Kong had just come out. And so this idea of high-level play was interesting, and we just sort of had been playing that game. Uh, my whole life, I've, I've played that game. There's never been a period I haven't. And so uh, we got really good to the point of – this was a few years before I learned to program. This was around like 2010, um, where I could really like see the program logic playing <laughs> before me because there's such good code about – the whole uh, theory of that game is about making the game close at the end, meaning the basketball game that you're playing. Um, and so when you have a lead, things go wrong for you. And when you don't have a lead, things go right for you. But it's like so finely tuned that you don't realize that it's uh, doing that, that it's like wrangling the score like that. But when you get into high level play in that game, you know, we would be up by, we'd be up like 60 to six or something like that. And you're basically like getting to the fringes of the logic where it's trying to get that score closer, but you're so much better than the computer players that, <laughs> you know, we would miss 20 or 30 shots in a row, but get every single rebound because we were good enough to do that. And so that was, uh, that was actually, I look back on that as sort of a, the first time I like deeply understood programming in the oh. sense of uh, control logic in a program, because you can really see it at play there. So if I had to play death, I would, uh, I would whoop, death's ass in that game <laughs> that game 
Um, like, are you a, a, com- a particularly competitive player? Like, I mean, you clearly had a compulsion for that, but, you know, have you ever been locked in high score battles or anything like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've broken controllers and uh, put holes in walls. And I'm, I'm not. I was a... not expecting that, James. I was not expecting that. Yeah, that's that. not my demeanor at all. So um, I have friends I knew a long time and we just never really played anything. And then we would put on, say, NBA Jam TE, and they would see a different side of me. But um, <laughs> in the games that I'm good at, um, I'm I'm hyper competitive, and I I hate to lose, and I love to win. Um, and one of those is NBA Jam Tournament Edition. The other is um, NFL Blitz. Okay, yeah. It was a follow up to NBA Jam again by the same creator, Mark Turmel. By the way, Mark Turmel did Smash TV. Oh, really? It- yeah i did not know that that is a good sports guy that became his niche yeah basically um some of the best-selling arcade games ever so nba jam made a billion dollars in 1993 just in quarters that's insane i mean those are both like genuinely some of my favorite games like they're amazing they feel so good you know there's that that unique thing that games can do yeah he's an expert of game feel i think um and just finely tuning the systems and also a minimal design. Um, NBA just has a beautifully minimal design, but it's over the top in certain ways. So I think he's an expert at that kind of game and it, it really worked in these in the sports realm. And really good barks as well. <laughs> like you know, yeah. like from downtown oh. and I'd buy that for a dollar. Like they, those are the, the things that oh, stick I, out to me in both of those games. Oh, those just continue to persist in you know the sports announcing yeah, repertoire. Absolutely. Like some slogans are, yeah, that announcer really killed it. Um, yeah, I'm, it's just a perfect game, essentially. I'm, I'm excited to ask you this next question, though, then. Um, James, if you're prone to such things, what is your worst rage quit? Jeez, um, there's been a lot of bad ones. Um, <laughs> would be the worst. Oh, one, so I... Uh, I was playing Madden, uh, must have been uh, Madden 07, I want to say, online on PS3, maybe Madden 08, something like that. And like, I just can't play online sports games because it's it's so brutal. But what, what happened was I threw an interception or something something bad happened to me in the game. And I threw my controller so hard at the floor that it bounced. We had like, my parents had a shade carpet but sort of like a modern, like tasteful one. And uh, it had a lot of recoil or, uh, you know, bounce to it. So the controller bounced so hard off the floor that it hit the ceiling and actually broke on the ceiling. <laughs> completely, the one of the joysticks like fell out of it. It broke so badly. That is impressive. Was a brand new controller. My friend had bought it for me so that we could play two-player uh, Madden and literally a couple days later i broke it by bouncing it off the floor and then it really broke on the ceiling so that's probably my worst my most embarrassing uh, moment as far as rage quitting that is probably one of the best rage quits we've had so far that is that is very impressive the bounce um, the, the breaking on the ceiling is is, exactly. is very good um has there ever been a game that's kind of uh, consumed your life to the point where you're like i've got to uninstall this this is starting to become a hindrance um no, I don't think so. Um, no, I don't think I've gotten to that point. There's been games I've played a lot, um, but never 
But again, uh, when I was really playing a lot of games, I was a kid, and yeah, you have the time, under, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, there's times where again, like uh, programming these worlds, being a kind of game for me. Um, there's a lot of times where it's really hard for me to stop programming for the day, but my wife's home from work, and it's like time to spend time with her, and I'm still going, and it's 8 p.m. So uh, I don't think I will uninstall it, but my dissertation project. Is- <laughs> uh too consuming at times um okay uh is there a game that that you kind of you'd see as your like chicken soup game a game that you go back to for for comfort yeah i'll say two um for a sort of uh, emotional comfort it would be linked to the past for the reasons we talked about earlier um i'm just utterly like transported to my version of hyrule that exists in my world which yeah. is like bringing in aspects of my own personal life. Um, that would be one. I can always, you know, on my deathbed, I'll be able to go back to that and be utterly transported. Uh, as far as just kind of a chicken soup game, a game I just really love to play and that I can put in 10 hours of it and it's just really fun for me, that's Tecmo Super Bowl. Okay. Another sports game. Um, 1991, I believe. It's kind of like NBA Jam. It's a little more simulationist. Yeah. But it's Again, just like brilliantly designed. That's one of those games that people edit the rosters each year. You know, people have been playing it ever since it came out um, with like ROM hacks and stuff like that. So that's kind of my chicken soup game, Tecmo Super Bowl. Um, and given the kind of the the breadth of uh, emotions that games are able to uh, elicit, um, one of the rarest is still laughter. So James, what games have really made you laugh? Mm. That's a great question. It's tricky. I mean, that's why I ask it, because it is, I think, still one of the hardest things for, for games to do. Right. Here's a moment that I think I probably erupted in a kind of laughter, um, partly because it was like totally the kind of experience that I that I want to have. Um, it was a mission in Grand Theft Auto 3 where it was like you're supposed to like tail this guy and I'm recalling it sort of from vague memory. Yeah. Mission. Um, you're supposed to like be following this guy in a car and then at some point he gets out and I don't know if you like walk over to us, somehow you accost him. Basically it was like a short mission that was a car chase or following a guy. Yeah. Um, What happened in mine when I was doing it was somehow the guy, he like got in an accident in his car was about to blow up so he got out of the car and now he's trying to like walk to the place that he was set to go to <laughs> and so i got out too and then when i started running after him he started running and eventually he got into a boat and then i got <laughs> into a boat. and we had it, it was this like hour-long chase um through the waterways of grand theft auto 3 and it was like primarily a boat chase which was not designed at all um the mission again was just this brief car like tailing a person. Um, and it was like, I remember it being over an hour of uh, a boat chase on foot. Uh, I think he stole another car and then I had to steal a car. And so at the end, I was probably just, uh, I probably was absolutely erupting in a sort of like joyous laughter because it was such a fun, emergent experience that probably has never happened again. I'm probably the only person that experienced it because it was so quirky. 
Um, well, I, I, I want to talk more now about like your your sort of current or ongoing projects because you, you, as I say, like you've got a whole bunch of them and they've all got such kind of great hooks. Um, but bad news was the one I was drawn to initially because I said at the start it kind of it hits so many of my my interest points. So could you like maybe just give a little sort of pricey of, of of what that is? So the premise of bad news, the narrative premise is it's the summer of 1979 in an American small town and someone in that town has died in their home alone. So that particular deceased person is unidentified and the player's task in this story is that they are the mortician's assistant, assistant to the county mortician, the county the town is in, and their specific task is to find and notify the next of kin given this unidentified deceased person in their home. So prior to the player embarking on this task, the town itself was procedurally generated. So this is using a framework uh, that I've developed called Talk of the Town. And by the way, this this, uh, experience bad news is a collaboration with Adam Somerville and Ben Samuel, two super talented people in my lab. Okay. So someone's died, home alone, 1979, procedurally generated small town. Well, how the player actually goes about playing this is that they sit down at an installation. So it's an installation-based game. Um, We've mounted it at art galleries, at film festivals, uh, game festivals, sort of all different kinds of places. But you can picture a sort of installation in the corner of a room. And this installation, as its core component, has a model theater. So it's like a puppet theater, but we don't have puppets, so we call it a model theater. But sort of a small uh, theater that sits on a table and has a curtain that can be drawn open and closed. Okay. So we sit the player down at a table in front of that closed curtain, and they have an iPad. And on that iPad, it displays information about where they currently are. So at the beginning, it's going to say, you're at this home at this address, and you see a deceased person before you. This person has long blonde hair, a tattoo, whatever defining characteristics are generated. Then to do anything in the game, the player simply says what they want to do out loud. So it's kind of interactive fiction style, but with like the best parser ever, as I'll explain. So they can say, um, I go a block north, or I walk outside, I go to the neighbors, I go to that bar that I see over there. And when they say what they want to do out loud, I'm listening in through a microphone Okay. Uh, at a location away from the installation, another room or uh, wherever I am. And I'm live coding as a sort of Wizard of Oz behind the scenes. And so when they say I go a block north, I type in a command that causes their interface to be updated. And now they go a block north. So speak aloud to do whatever you want. But the core of the game happens, the core sort of gameplay experience happens when the player decides to speak to somebody in the town. So let's say they go a block north. Now the iPad says there's a bar on the corner and then they go inside the bar and now the iPad says there's a bartender and there's these patrons and they say, I want to speak to the bartender. Well, at that moment, that curtain will be drawn back 
and a live actor, Ben Samuel, our team member, uh, will play that bartender live. And then they just have a real face-to-face conversation. But critically, Ben, the actor, is not just playing a, a totally fictional character. It's a character that's actually lived out a life in the simulated time that led up to the summer of 1979. Again, every town that players play in is procedurally generated beforehand. So Ben has like these secret screens that are displaying information to him about who he is. um, And he's acting out these virtual characters that lived out of life. So it'd be like, for those familiar with Dwarf Fortress, um, a version of it that's an installation where an actor plays out all the various dwarfs in the fortress or something like that. It has access to their life history and their personality and their love life and their work life and so forth. That is so good. Like just everything about that is so exciting. Um, the immediately thing that, the immediate thing that springs to mind, which is probably a terrible thing is what do you do when people say things like, I want to poke the body or I want to, do bad things to the body you know that classic way of like in text adventures in the past is like you can't do that right now if it's if if you're the parser they can do whatever they want presumably that's a great question so i I have uh at my recourse a command where i can type arbitrary text that will, will be displayed on the interface um so if they're trying to like inspect the body or or basically go beyond the level of detail that we model i sort of can make it clear in what i type to their iPad so I can say, they'll say like, I look around the apartment and we don't model like the furniture or things like that. So I'll type the apartment is barren and things like that. And they'll eventually uh, get the point as far as like antagonistic play, if that's what you were thinking too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People I think are much less likely to do it. First of all, in an installation setting, Um, we kind of, we usually have curtains that actually go around the player and actor so that it's a private experience. That's a major design goal is this sort of uh, private intimate experience where the player doesn't feel like a performer. Um, But I think, I mean, they know there's a person on the other side. We tell them that before. So I think they're kind of less likely to do antagonistic or sort of um, degenerate style, (laughs) right? When they know there's another person. But that's a great question. That seems that like that's such a like, there's there's so much in that that's that's so innovative. Like, where did that come about? Like, were there people in the lab that kind of had theater backgrounds? Like, I mean, that 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 the, your colleague who did all the acting and that's that's some feats, you know. That's a great question, and uh, the story of Bad News, its origins, is that Adam Somerville and I were two members of the three person team the actor Ben Samuel being the third. Adam and I were building a digital game, just a straight up video game using Unity. And this game was going to be very similar to the premise of Bad News. It was a little bit different, but uh, it was going to be set in these procedurally generated American small towns. I actually developed a simulation framework and Adam was collaborating on that initially uh, for the purpose of this game. And there was all this kind of rich stuff happening. One of the major things that's going on in that simulation, uh, essentially how it works, maybe I'll explain that too, because that's a a core part of it. It begins in the summer of 1839 and there's an empty town and then a few families come in to start farms. And then everyone in the town just lives out 
every day and night in their life. And when they live out a day, they might go to work. Um, when they live out a night, let's say they already work during the day, they might go to the bar. And when they go to the bar, they see who's there and they'll actually interact with other people that are around. Um, and in this way, social relationships and social networks and eventually family networks and work networks build. Um, and they may have kids and the population of the town grows and then people can move from outside the town. So you have this sort of evolving virtual world. And is that just uh, like a program that you've created? Because like I, I see that you've you've used that in, in other projects that you've done as well, this kind of basic kind of algorithm, I suppose. I mean, I'm not, I, I have no idea how no, it works, but. It's beyond an algorithm. I mean, it's, uh, you know, several thousand lines of code. It's a, it's a, it's a framework, I would say, would, would be a better term for it. And maybe that's just being pedantic. No, no, um, you know much yeah. better than me. You, you, you right, right, <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, it's a framework that's sort of evolved over time. That was its origins. I had an earlier one that it was influenced by, and now I'm sort of moving to a third one, which is for my dissertation work. But yeah, it's essentially this this framework that was initially developed for this game and that I've been uh, developing since. But it's really part of this larger thing of, uh, at one end, me beginning to learn, me learning how to pick randomly from a list, and then at the other end, uh, where I'm at now with with developing it further. And how much detail does it go into? You know, like how how much can you explore this history? For bad news, um, it uh, so certain details would be. Uh, it's, it's basically like life events besides the basic interactions they've had with people. It's like they were hired for this job at this time. And the way they were hired was they went through a sort of simulated interview process. And then the person that was hiring decided they were the one for the job. Uh, so you can kind of explore some details of that, but it's like they were hired for that job or they had that child or they passed away on that date. Um, they moved to this house and things like that. Uh, but where the detail really was and where, what, what the game is really about is – so bad news in a sense is about having conversations that probe character knowledge bases. So in simulation, people spread uh, – they when they see another character, let's say, um, and let's say that character's at work, well, it's kind of modeling that you would know that person – works there now because you saw them working there. So they'll actually form a memory about that. And then they can propagate knowledge. They can say, hey, did you hear that John works at the, the tavern on Fifth Street now? And now that other person heard it. And then people are like misremembering things, maybe mixing up John for another John and then thinking this one works at where the other one works. So there's all this like knowledge phenomena that that's where the real detail is. And in bad news, that's what you're exploring. That's that's amazing. That's like that. that there's, and as I say, like you've used this kind of um, the the framework in other things. So that one of the other ones that really struck me was uh, uh, Juke Joint. Is Juke Joint or Jive Joint? It's Juke Joint. Uh, Juke Joint. Juke Joint. Which seems to be a similar sort of thing where you have this one seems like this again. It's such a good hook. It's like you're listening into a conversation, right? And you control just the music on the jukebox, which then kind of affects their mood which then sort of changes the flow of the conversation is that is that accurate yeah that's about it um the hook is it's a game about a haunted jukebox that changes people's lives so in this game 
you are a ghost that inhabits a jukebox, sort of rundown jukebox in a rundown bar in a rundown American small town. In the mid 80s, this one takes place a little later than Bad News um, for fun. And so uh, the only thing you do as the player is select which of the songs in the jukebox will play. And it's loaded with a handful of songs. Then when you play that song, when you choose for it to play, the jukebox sort of acts on its own and the lyrics begin emanating from the machine. And what we've done is taken each song that we load into the jukebox as authors, taken the lyrics and then broken them into stanzas, essentially. So the first stanza will play and then we've actually tagged the emotional, the thematic content of each stanza. So when that stanza plays, there's these two characters who are sitting at the bar contemplating a dilemma in their life that is uh, dominating their streams of consciousness. And when that stanza plays, the characters then process its thematic content. So it's like one that's about regret, a stanza about regret. Then the characters think about regret in their own life and how that works is it actually generates a thought in English using a natural language generation framework um, that expresses like what regret means in their life. And so as the song proceeds, there's these different thematic elements that are driving the streams of consciousness of the characters. And the goal as this ghost in the jukebox is to help them resolve the dilemma that's dominating their stream of consciousness. That's so, so good. So they're hopefully moving into thoughts. The stream of consciousness leads them to a resolution um, that essentially was driven by the lyrics. And are they uh, original songs or are they kind of existing works? Uh, they're existing ones. So I oh, see that's super interesting because you can kind of, that introduces an element of, you know, what is, you're kind of making a judgment call of like objectively this song is about regret. Whereas the person listening to it might be like, oh, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? That's that's a good point. Yeah, one thing we can do is we can uh, tag for multiple different, you know, competing interpretations, and then either or both could actually affect the characters. <laughs> really simple for us to to tag for one or multiple. That must have been a fun thing to do, though, to like pick the songs, or was it more of a whatever's kind of I don't know whatever we're able to use. Uh, so that game's in a prototype phase, and my collaborator on that is named Tyler Brothers, and he, I, he was the one who picked the songs, and I think he, one was like on the radio when he was thinking about it, and so he grabbed that. Um, that's the Coal Miner's Daughter by L Loretta Lynn. Uh, it kind of fit with like this notion of a small town, and absolutely, and making, yeah. That's my cook like loves that song ever since he read about it in the Juke Joint paper. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think you more or less haphazardly pick the ones that, that we currently have in there, but, uh, yeah, that's still early days as part of playtesting. definitely thinking about the songs and the way we've tagged it, uh, will be critical, but it's kind of a, like you can talk about strategy, but it's intentionally like an anti, <laughs> it's an anti-player game in a sense, because you just do the one thing and then it sort of like is let loose so um we're not that concerned about people for instance like trying to pick the best song at the best time it's really <laughs> because uh so so in that again it's using that same framework so those characters have actually lived out simulated lives prior to coming to the bar this night 
and they actually are facing that dilemma in their life. For instance, should I leave this town? Um, they actually have reasons for leaving or for staying that are grounded in the life they've led inside of the computer in that simulated town. And so there's really no way to uh, anticipate how the lyrics will affect a character because each character is brand new. And when I play, I'll have two characters that have never existed before. They'll never exist again. And then when you play, you'll have your own characters that are special to you. That's amazing. Um, I, I'm, I'm really interested. You mentioned kind of way back at the start about this, um, this game or this program that kind of generated uh, radio, uh, radio drama. Um, which, as somebody who is a writer, and I've just just recently actually been commissioned to do a radio drama, that's that's a bit concerning to me. So <laughs> alleviate my concerns. Sure, uh, maybe I can't. That this will be interesting to see. Um, uh, that's my dissertation project for the okay, most part. Okay, okay. And so what I'm doing there is I've taken this simulation framework models American small town life. And relative to what it was for bad news, um, amping up the fidelity of how it simulates. So essentially getting more detail in there. So in bad news, kind of how I described it, I didn't get into too much detail, but essentially it was like, oh, two characters are at the bar. Uh, evolve their relationship. They either like each other more or less based on how compatible they are, their mm -hmm. personalities. And then they spread knowledge. That's what was going on as far as social interaction. Well, now it's like at a level of detail that's uh, higher. So it's saying, no, now like this guy insulted that guy. And then he vowed to get revenge that night when he was thinking about what had happened to him at the bar. So the specific actions like insult uh, think about the thing that had happened to me earlier, uh, vow to get revenge or whatever in that example. And so there's all these specific actions that are happening. Now, when a character participates in an action, say when they are insulted by someone, they form a memory of that happening to them. And if someone else at the bar saw this happen, they also form a memory. And say that person who saw this happen at the bar, when they go home, let's say they might tell their partner, you don't, you won't believe what happened at the bar. So and so insulted so and so, and now that partner also has a memory about it. So everyone's forming up basically this huge amount of memories about what has happened in the town to them and to other people, and that happens for a few hundred years of simulated time. Then another system looks at what has happened throughout the history of this town. And of course it's unique every time. Yeah. And it's looking for interesting narrative stuff that's actually emerged. So it's like, oh, if you pull out this event that happened and then this other one 20 years later, like this foreshadowed this in some interesting way. And here there's like this revenge story that sort of has this through line into a family feud or things like that. It's looking for any kind of um, interesting emergent narrative threads that have actually happened in that town. this isn't making me any more comfortable this kind of <laughs> this snore uh, this story detecting robot that goes through and so this will be a good story just pull out the details story detecting yeah exactly i, I call that test story recognition so um you're totally on the track there i mean this is early days you don't need to worry uh <laughs> well for now i don't i have to tell it what's interesting right so it can't 
well, that would be a whole other dissertation probably to come up with a system that can arbitrarily find interesting narratives. I'm telling it what a revenge story is, and I'm telling it what kind of patterns can uh, constitute that. So like you with your writing expertise could think about the interesting kinds of narratives that could emerge once you understood what was going on in the town, and you could actually then define uh, the patterns by which it can detect those stories actually emerging. There's a lot of human stuff in the loop is what I mean to express. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm really interested in that actually because like, as a writer, I'm somebody like I'm. Uh, I'm profoundly interested in in the structure of story. This is why that was I found that so alarming. Like, because I I, I do I do think there is like there is a kind of <clears throat> there is a, a naturalness to how a story works. You know, there is. It, it seems kind of reductive to say there's a template. It's not so much a template, but there are. <clears throat> excuse me. There are kind of there is a kind of a, a definitively kind of describable thing that is a story there is like a uh, it's a story circle is the, the the best way that i've found to describe it that dan Harmon wrote a bunch about it and it's based on joseph campbell stuff like i love all that aspect of the kind of the algorithm of of the story like do you is that something you're aware of and you look into or are you just looking for like moments of conflict and mirroring emotions and things no i'm absolutely interested in um, that kind of work. So um, I talked about a, a sort of second system that looks at the history of the town and finds interesting patterns. It's not actually, that system doesn't write the radio play. It feed, the patterns are sort of, uh, what it's finding is just sequences of events. Yeah. But of course in the telling, you might tell things out of orders, you might sample uh subsets of event sequences of course so that's like the raw material of the story but then another system is about generating the script of the radio play oh come with on both and then jumping into conversation um and that harkens back to, to the work i've done on generating dialogue which like i said is like why i went to santa cruz so that's coming full circle there and then i'm actually hoping to target audio so the frame story of this experience is uh it's a troupe of robot actors who are acting out these emergent narratives from American small town life. And the reason I'm doing that is because I'm using uh, the Amazon Poly framework for speech synthesis. Okay. So actually getting like the audio. And uh, as you know, like the state of the arts, um, if you call it a phone tree or anything, we know the state of the art isn't that far. It's actually getting a lot farther quickly. But basically I have these like, seven or eight voices that Amazon has. And uh, I can do things to modulate them, but what I'm going to do is lean into that sort of robotic aesthetic yeah. so that it's a troop of these like Amazon voices. And now like Eliza or whatever her name is, is playing this character today in this episode. <laughs> but what I mean by that is um, there's sort of a, a pipeline of systems and the part yeah. that's the patterns isn't actually the part doing the writing. Um, and definitely I'm interested in uh, work on essentially uh, narrative patterns. And, and I've actually done some work on the history of that. There's some really interesting early 20th century work um, that there was basically these two guys, William Wallace Cook and the other one's name's escaping me, who independently worked on these projects to like map out all of the narrative patterns, every single one. And so uh, – William Wallace Cook did a book called Plato, 
which is essentially like a computer program for generating narratives, but it's, it's from the thirties and it contains like thousands or millions or some combination of narrative sequences. Um, and there's another one where it's like a series of like eight books that, that do the same thing. So I'm actually, uh, interested in turning back to those kind of sources and then more contemporary ones to encode some of the patterns that are described there into the computer program itself. And so how, how has that been going? Like, have you generated things from that? So now I'm working more still on the simulation side. So basically I'm authoring action templates. Okay. Where an action's like an insult or think about bad thing that happened to me or vow revenge were the examples I gave earlier. So I'm authoring all the different things you can do in the world. And then uh, from there I'll move on to recognizing narrative sequences, which you can think of as sequences of those actions. Um, but I haven't done much there yet. I have, uh, yeah, nothing really interesting to report from the, the sequence because I haven't worked on it much. I've worked on it an hour or two. I'm in a um, really odd position of, you know, wishing you all the best because you seem like a wonderful man, but also I really hope you fail because <laughs> that's what I want to do. Uh, and I don't want the robots taking my jobs. Again, there's a lot of humans needed. So of course, of course. No, I'm I'm I'm, I'm joking. Obviously, you'll have um, a new job. It'll be uh, yeah, I'll be slightly authoring. different. I'm um, actually I'm really interested. Like how how the the kind of the raw data. I suppose this this is possibly a very naive question, but like when you run this uh, this framework, like how is the information? stored or presented like is it just a huge dump of text of like you know john met mary and gave birth to dave and bill it's not that that would be i mean i could do that um that would be like a really big text file um in bad news for instance where the characters have all the beliefs and can misremember and things like that a ton of memory was devoted to character beliefs and a bad news town uh, would take up like six gigabytes of memory. So, which is like way more than most graphically intensive games and there's no graphics at all. <laughs> One thing I'm doing is simplifying certain things to cut corners because I want even more detail, but I can't afford more memory. Um, but no, it's like a, it's basically, you know, I run this computer, uh, I run a command that executes a, a specific file, and then uh, Python is what's called an interpreted programming language, okay. which means you can execute commands, and then, uh, rather than a compiled language, where you compile the program, run it, and then see the result, in Python, you can have a sort of back and forth with the program itself, where you're seeing what variables are set to what and so forth. You're kind of looking into uh, the memory of the program and pulling things out. So that's probably a more confusing explanation than just saying <laughs> it's like a database. You can think okay, of it it's a like a database. Perfect. That database. Yeah. You've, you've hit my level there, James. That's, that's fine. Precise, more understandable, which is better. <laughs> Um, well, I'm curious, like, just to sort of bring us up to date, I suppose, like, as you've been kind of developing these, I mean, you say that you haven't kind of played an awful lot, but are there any games in particular that kind of stand out over the past sort of seven or eight years as being particularly, um, I don't know, impactful for whatever reason? Yeah, um, I mean, Dwarf Fortress is, for obvious reasons, a major influence. 
on all the work that I've done. Um, I remember first reading about it around the time I was learning to program. Um, and it was like, whoa, there's this like like-minded person who's, who's doing, who's also interested in these living, breathing worlds teeming with character and, and, and emergent narrative. So, um, Dwarf Fortress has been a major, major influence. Um, a game I've never played, but I like reading about is Football Manager, which I understand it's very popular uh, on your side of the pond. It certainly is. And some of the emergent narrative stuff in there and the social simulation is uh, has been really inspiring to me, but I've never played it, um, partly just due to time and resources and partly there would be a learning curve because I don't know much about association football. Well, um, I, I, weirdly, like I haven't... Um... I haven't played a uh, football manager or championship manager for for a long time and and I I'm I'm certain that the like the, the last few entries have probably been some of the best because they've I know there's been more introductions of the 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 kind of the the personalities of the players off the pitch as kind of factoring back into the game but I remember when I was in university there was a a guy who lived in um the same hall as me who would uh, we would just sit in his room and he would we would watch Championship Manager, which is not is it's not an exciting thing to watch. It's it's almost yeah. entirely text based. Yeah, but, exactly. But we'd get invested in these kind of ridiculous stories of this terrible. I think it was Derby that was always his team. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, and, and it, there is something very um, hypnotic about it. Like the and and it is it, absolutely as you say. It is you know your imagination takes over. I can see right. why it would be a fascinating thing to read about, even if you didn't know that much about football. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of the games that are the ones that speak to me are the ones where it's not even playing it. That's as interesting as hearing about the stories of other people playing it. Weirdly, I feel exactly that way about Dwarf Fortress. Like I do I, too. I do too. Yeah. Like I've never lasted more than about half an hour with Dwarf Fortress. I, I just find it intensely uh, overwhelming. And it's right. similar with, with yeah. Eve as well. Eve is another one that's like amazing to read about, but I don't think I could ever play it. Um, well, well, James, I feel like we've covered all sorts of um, fascinating stuff, but if there's anything that you kind of haven't mentioned, um, please do uh, take this opportunity now or just, I mean, I don't know, like given that you've, you have all these projects, like are there things people can go and play with and explore? Unfortunately, there are some. Um, much of what we talked about is still in development. Um, I'm hoping to wrap up my dissertation project in early summer, which will be the generative radio drama. Uh, Bad News is uh, complete, but it's an installation-based game. Yeah. So, uh, have you ever and, have you ever had anyone else do it aside from you? Would you be comfortable with that? There's a group in Montreal, um, a friend of mine named Jonathan Lassard, and he is an actor he's working with who are trying to put it on themselves. We're absolutely comfortable with it, but it requires a specific expertise as far as acting because you're parsing huge amounts of information to act out these people that live out little simulated lives. And then from the my standpoint as the Wizard of Oz and that experience, um, you know, live coding and things like that. So there's a, a lot of, there's a big hurdle, but um, we're totally open to people doing that. It just hasn't been attempted except for this group in Montreal who's just getting going. Um, you mentioned at the beginning Game Space, which is a galaxy of games. 
it's the the medium of video games as a 3d galaxy that i spent about fly. an hour on this the other day after i described oh, it <laughs> and i think great. i probably only found about two games that i i knew it, that's it's, the idea it's, it's crazy like it, it, yeah it's, it's insane the amount of games yeah, it's a galaxy of 15,000 stars, and each star represents an actual game that exists, and the stars are placed together, or they're placed in the space such that related games, say subgenres or genres, form constellations in the space. And you can fly around and then uh, watch videos or read about games. And that's really what we were going for, is we wanted this serendipitous experience where um, you just find out about like wild games you've never heard of. Uh, particularly maybe historical ones. So I'm happy to hear you didn't know the majority of games that you won in. Is there any way of like making a path through that, like programming in a specific path? Uh, what do you mean by a path? Well, I'm just, I was just this literally just occurred to me now, like given all the guests that I've had on the show, that'd be quite a fun thing to try and, you know, here's say Chris Crawford's kind of timeline and just connect all the games that, that he mentioned as, as being inspirational and similar for you and like here's Tim Schafer's path through the galaxy of games if you know what I mean oh, that's a great idea uh, currently there's not there's some cool by the way this can be played at gamespace.io yep. uh, some cool visualization stuff that we wanted to do that's one that we haven't thought of that's a really cool idea yeah you can imagine a sort of like vapor trail yeah exactly passing through and it's the checkpoints like vapor trail across all the, and then it's branching off. And yeah, that I'm picturing that and I'm liking that picture. Um, currently that's, that's not possible, but maybe that'll end up on our uh, to-do list. Cool. Well, I mean, what, what is your kind of plan now? As you said, as you mentioned at the beginning, you know, you're just finishing up your, your PhD. So, so what's next for, for James Ryan? Yeah, I don't have anything settled. So um, I have a few prospects that, um, I'm not to the point of being worth mentioning, um, but I'm available essentially. Um, if you go, <laughs> my website is jamesryan.world, and there's a little button called hire, which uh, um, basically explains this prospect that uh, I'll be available in in the summer. But I, I I hope I end up somewhere where I can work on cool stuff. I mentioned being at this lab has allowed me to. Um, turn all of my sort of various creative interests into like legitimate professional ventures. Yeah. And so I hope um, I end up somewhere with like-minded people where I can still work on cool simulation stuff, language stuff, visualization stuff. Um, Are you excited? I'm very excited. I'm ready. I had a great time here, um, but it's been five years and I'm ready for the next season. Amazing. Um, well, this has been a, a genuine treat, James. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope that was okay for you. Oh, it's been a blast. I'm really glad you invited me on. Thank you so much. Yeah.